The September 11th attacks perpetrated by Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda were always destined to alter the course of world history. Yet bin Laden himself probably didn't see the second Iraq war getting attached to the war on terror. Bin Laden and Saddam Hussein despised each other as much as each individually hated the United States. The two men had individual goals that were at conflict and would have gladly killed the other if only given the opportunity. Despite this, six years after the 9-11 attacks, one-third of all Americans still believed that Saddam Hussein, and not bin Laden, was responsible for the heinous attacks that claimed more than 3,000 lives. How could so many Americans confuse the two men regarding an event that they vowed to never forget? The public deception began almost immediately after the event. James Fifner of George Mason University establishes a troubling timeline for us. He writes that the decision to retaliate against Al-Qaeda and to defeat the Taliban in Afghanistan was made in the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. This decision was made by President George W. Bush in full consultation with his national security advisors. Six days later, however, on September 17, 2001, the president issued a secret order to his Secretary of Defense to begin drawing up war plans to depose Saddam Hussein of Iraq. This was despite absolutely zero evidence that Iraq had anything to do with the 9-11 attacks. General Tommy Franks was brought in by the White House in December of 2001 in order to go over and revise the finished plans. By March of 2002, President Bush had had enough of planning and reportedly told his national security team of his intent to remake the Middle East. I'll clean up the language of our president here, as he remarked to his team, screw Saddam, we're taking him out. You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is our final episode in our series regarding the life and legacy of Iraq's most infamous dictator, Saddam Hussein. His fall. Fifner continues moving the timeline forward. Bush added Iraq to the axis of evil during his 2002 January State of the Union address. Joining Saddam in the clique were the rogue nations of Iran and North Korea. Despite the brilliance of Saturday Night Live during this time, I can sadly report the unfortunate news that math was not officially included in the axis of evil. On June 1st, 2002, the president told West Point graduates that it would be necessary to go on the offensive against terrorism signaling a new phase in the war on terror to all those who were listening. He told the cadets that if we wait for threats to fully materialize, we will have waited too long. 
The next three months involved a number of exalted foreign policy diplomats trying desperately to steer the president away from opening a second front in the war on terror. But none would be able to break through. His mind regarding Saddam had been made up a long time ago. This is my purpose, why God put me here on earth, Bush told confidants. The born-again Christian even went so far to say that this was a mission of God, given to him so that he could liberate Iraq. This confidence came despite the fact that there were mass protests around the world and within pockets of the United States. Not everyone seemed to be against the war in Iraq, however. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld regularly placed biblical quotes on the cover page of the president's daily briefing. Pictures of Saddam Hussein were placed next to suggestive verses, such as one from the book of Peter, which stated, It is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Connections such as these ensured that the Second Iraq War would become framed as a modern-day Christian crusade. But the president's personal belief and desires weren't enough to launch a war in Iraq that the American people were incredibly skeptical of. Frustrated that a year and a half of secret internal planning for war had brought him no closer to the actual liberation of Iraq, the administration dispatched Secretary of State Colin Powell to speak in front of the United Nations to make the American case for war. The presentation contained three main rationale for a sequel to the Persian Gulf War. First came the claim that Saddam Hussein's weapon of mass destruction program had been illegally restarted. Secondly was the claim that Hussein was harboring and supporting terrorism making him a legitimate target for the war on terror. Third came the assertion that Saddam had committed outrageous human rights abuses while in power. The third rationale was the most accurate of the three, and thus we will begin our discussion regarding the fall of Saddam Hussein by examining a lifetime's worth of human rights abuses. Saddam shared more than a mustache with his idol, Joseph Stalin. The Soviet man of steel was fond of the phrase, no man, no problem, in the justification of his deadly purges. Both men suffered from a form of malignant narcissism, which manifests itself in extreme arrogance, a need for power and recognition, and tendencies to use or exploit others for their own gain. Neither had the ability to empathize with the suffering of others, even their own people. When faced with an avalanche of abuse, it is easy to tune it out and assume that because it is so pervasive, it must be normal within a society that is different than ours. To avoid falling into this trap, I'll start with an abuse story that is more relatable to most of my audience. Saddam's acceptance of the torture of Iraq's sports heroes. We all get frustrated when our favorite athletes don't play up to our expectation levels. 
but Iraq took its motivational tactics to a new level. Saddam's eldest son, Uday, was placed in charge of the Iraqi national football team, a squad whose players joked that they had three homes, the field, their actual houses, and Uday's prison. A poor run of form meant that they would have weeks to think about their mistakes while languishing in jail. These conditions weren't ideal for recovery either, as the players stuck behind bars were put through 12-hour sessions of forced fitness drills in full military fatigues. During the sessions, they would increase their strength by kicking around a concrete ball. After losing a World Cup qualifying match to Kazakhstan, Uday had each of the players' feet caned. He personally determined how many lashes that each player had earned with their performance. Uday also personally whipped players from time to time with an electroshock cord. An unwarranted red card resulted in the forced shaving of the team captain's head and eyebrows, a humiliating punishment for Muslims. There were no outs for the players who had sought to play the world's beautiful game. They were each individually informed that abandoning their national team obligations would make them and their family members official enemies of the state. If Saddam and his sadistic sons were willing to use these techniques to motivate, then what were they willing to do to punish? The town of Dujali experienced the president's notion of group punishment in 1982 after a group of militants shot at his motorcade, killing two of his personal bodyguards. 140 fighting-aged men disappeared from Dujali in the aftermath, but that was only the beginning of Saddam's wrath. 1,500 townspeople, including children, were imprisoned, tortured, and later deported to a desert work camp, the equivalent of a desert gulag. The town was later bulldozed, including thousands of acres filled to the brim with the prized orchards that the settlement had been known for. Today, the town of Dujali remains a wasteland filled with mere shrubs. Tragic stories regarding this massacre are found across Iraq because of the unique nature of the group punishment. One individual who survived long enough to testify against Saddam Hussein had lost seven of his ten brothers in the massacre. One of Saddam's primary targets for abuse were the Iraqi Kurds. In 1987, 40 Kurdish villages were targeted with chemical weapons including mustard gas and nerve agents. The weapons of mass destruction caused horrific amounts of death, as well as blindness, vomiting, blisters, convulsions, and asphyxiation. 5,000 men, women, and children died in these indiscriminate attacks, and more than 10,000 lived to suffer disfigurement and permanent sickness. The attacks were carried out by Saddam's cousin, a man who earned the nickname Chemical Ali for his role in the violence. 
A year later, Saddam ordered genocide on a larger scale against the Kurds of Anfal. Over the course of six months in 1988, 200,000 Iraqi soldiers rounded up Kurdish citizens of Iraq and destroyed 4,000 separate villages. Men and women were separated from each other in eerie similarity to the Nazi Holocaust. The men were shot and buried in mass graves, while women and children were forcibly moved to relocation camps. Poison gas was used with regularity at all levels of the one-sided conflict. The rights group Middle East Watch makes clear that their deaths did not come in the heat of battle, what is commonly known as collateral damage in the military euphemism, nor were they acts of aberration by individual commanders whose excesses passed unnoticed or unpunished by their superiors. Rather, these Kurds were systematically put to death in large numbers on the orders of the central government of Baghdad. Days, sometimes weeks, after being rounded up, villages marked for destruction or else while fleeing from army assaults in prohibited areas. The Marsh Arabs similarly faced extinction at the hands of the Iraqi dictator. Relief Web tells us about a group of people who lived for thousands of years on their traditional land. They write in 2003 that 15 years ago, 250,000 Marsh Arabs lived on 20,000 square kilometers of waterways and marsh, an area as large as New Jersey. Today, only 40,000 remain. The Marsh Arabs have been forced from their homes, their economy, and their environment devastated by the regime of Saddam Hussein. This group of people were punished for not doing enough to support the invasion of Kuwait. In reprisal, Iraq began to systematically drain the marshlands through the creation of a series of unnecessary canals. As the marsh's water dried up, food shortages became the norm, and the land that has been publicly recognized as the Biblical Garden of Eden became uninhabitable. Today, less than 10% of the marshland remains. Entire palaces in Iraq were devoted to the professionalization of torture. These red rooms, as they were known, were viewed as final resting spots rather than transitory locations. We even have the physical remains of medieval tortured devices to paint us a sadistic narrative of Saddam's time in charge. Two years after Saddam's trial and execution, the Iraqi High Court opened a museum to showcase the tools that were used to maintain the Hussein family in power. Among the artifacts displayed are a man-shaped metal cage that naked individuals were locked into under the hot sun so that the metal would continually sear their flesh. Visitors can also see Saddam's electrocution table, as well as private videos of terrified prisoners who were beaten, had their arms and legs broken, were blown up with explosives, or had been terrifyingly thrown from rooftops. Murders at the hands of the security services included hangings, beatings, rape, and burning suspects alive. 
More than 250 mass graves are known, and the entirety of Iraq has been described as a large-scale prison. Up to half a million individuals are believed to have lost their lives directly because of the policies of the Butcher of Baghdad. Human Rights Watch have identified more than 290,000 persons who quote-unquote disappeared after Saddam had risen to power in the late 1970s. Through the involvement of his sons, violence became a Hussein family business. Saddam's first wife, whom he had married via an arranged marriage, happened to also be his first cousin. She was described as a cruel woman who mistreated her house servants. She even sought to murder her own dog by chaining him in the hot sun as a punishment for biting her. Corruption was a part of her everyday life, with her taking whatever she wanted whenever she wanted it. This selfish, seize-all attitude was applied most often to expensive European designer clothes and jewelry. She was easy to spot, as her desire to appear light-skinned meant that she coated her face with so much powder that it reportedly looked like someone had thrown flour on her. After gaining immense power in the late 70s, however, Hussein secretly wed his favorite mistress. His brother-in-law, another cousin, spoke out against the dishonorable act. The impassioned defense of his sister resulted in Saddam ordering his guards to plant explosives on the man's helicopter. If you think all of this sounds like the plot of a poorly made trashy romance novel, you're right. In fact, Saddam himself wrote one entitled Zebedah and the King. The book was published anonymously in 2000 and follows the main character, Arab, the king of Iraq. The book is a love story between the king and Zebedai, the female lead who clearly stands in to metaphorically represent the people of Iraq. Zebedah is unhappily married to a cruel man, a character who represents the United States, and she is horrifically raped by her wicked husband, on January 17th, which just happens to be the exact same day that the United States had previously launched Operation Desert Storm. A quick look at the reviews for the book suggests that Saddam was a better tyrant than author. Daniel Calder reviewed it for The Guardian, letting his readers know that the substance of the 160-page book was almost completely forgettable save for one bizarre scene in which a character describes interspecies mating between a herdsman and a bear, apparently meant to represent Russia and Iraq. Calder even wades into the argument about whether Saddam had assistance in writing the love novel, stating for the record that while some critics have suggested that Zebedah and the king was ghostridden, I doubt that. It is so poorly structured and dull that it has the whiff of dictatorial authenticity. Saddam's actual love life wasn't much to write home about either. His first wife, Sajida, the bride of Saddam as she was nicknamed in the West, remained married to her husband for 32 years. 
The couple had five children, including Yude, who became so incensed at the rumors of his father abandoning his mother for his preferred mistress that he beat his father's servant for his role as the go-between for the two lovers. Saddam's immediate reaction at the slight was to charge his son with murder. Another cast-off mistress, Parsula Lampos, was eagerly mined for information in the build-up to the Second Iraq War. Lampsos was viewed as a bridge to the second of the three justifications put forth by the Bush administration, namely that Saddam harbored and supported terrorists. Lampsos had plenty to say about the butcher, including his three largest obsessions of Viagra, the movie The Godfather, and watching tapes of his enemies being tortured. She also provided some of the most conclusive evidence of Saddam's malignant narcissism with the quote, He don't believe in his mother. He don't believe in God. He didn't believe in nobody. He believe only for Saddam. She proclaimed to investigators that he look at the mirror and say, I am Saddam. I am Saddam. Heil Hitler. Lampsos, whose sexual encounters with Saddam had begun when she was 16 years old and Saddam was 31, informed the United States government that she had personally seen Osama bin Laden visiting one of Saddam's palaces in the 90s. According to her, Hussein was materially supporting bin Laden as well as Palestine. There is unfortunately no clear debunking of this evidence, which is widely assumed to have been false. Whatever you may think about it, know that the Bush administration used it to justify their march towards war, ignoring opponents who pointed out that Lampsos was well known for attention-seeking behavior. The second part of her claim was provable, however, as Saddam Hussein had a long-standing policy to pay the families of deceased Palestinian suicide bombers. More than $35 million were gifted through the program, which included $25,000 paid to the families of successful suicide bombers, and $10,000 for individuals who were killed in confrontations with Israel. The program was incredibly detailed, in a way that reeks of government bureaucracy. If one's house was destroyed by the Israeli military, Saddam would give you $5,000 as well as another grand if you happened to have been wounded. The decision to take your own life in order to express your point of view is an exceptionally complex decision. Rather than fanatics at the top of ideological groups, the vast majority of suicide bombers tend to lead what is referred to as hopeless lives. Offering someone who is in a hopeless situation a way to enrich their family through their own sacrifice is a powerful incentive. Walter Schroom of Kansas State University examined the decline of Palestinian suicide bombers after Saddam was deposed in order to establish a causal link regarding the Iraqi program. Schum concluded that nearly 1,100 casualties may have been prevented in Israel as a consequence of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. 
While Powell's presentation to the United Nations did include information regarding the Palestinian terror connection, its main focus was on driving home a link between Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. Americans were predisposed to believing this link with an Opinion Dynamics poll six months before the 9-11 attacks, finding that 73% of Americans believed that it was very, or somewhat likely, that Saddam Hussein will organize terrorist attacks on U.S. targets to retaliate for recent airstrikes. The Bush administration rolled with this ill-informed assumption, regularly playing up the misconception. Like a magician who shows you how the trick was pulled off, Bush later would say for the record, See, in my line of work, you got to keep repeating things over and over and over again for the truth to sink in, to kind of catapult the propaganda. The connection that Powell exploited was al-Zakarwi, a Palestinian with ties to Iraq who had fought in Afghanistan against the Soviets. The 2006 Senate report on pre-war intelligence admitted that while al-Zakarwi traveled to Iraq, he did not serve as a connection point between Saddam and bin Laden, each of whom I will continually remind you despised the other. Still, the president pushed and pushed and further pushed a connection between Hussein and terrorism, oftentimes utilizing the words Saddam, terrorism, and al-Qaeda all near each other, allowing Americans who were rightly obsessed with everything September 11th related to blend the words and concepts together. Despite clear reporting to the contrary, a Washington Post poll conducted two years after the Twin Towers were toppled found an astonishing 69% of Americans that believed that Saddam Hussein was personally involved in the 9-11 attack. Another 82% mistakenly believed that Saddam had provided either financial or technical assistance to bin Laden. This was two years into an Afghan war purely designed to capture bin Laden. At this point in time, seven out of ten Americans had fallen for the propaganda that their government was catapulting at them. The third justification for the second Persian Gulf War was that Iraq had restarted its Weapons of Mass Destruction program. This portion of the war rationale was pushed so much that Hollywood took up its cause in multiple blockbusters. But not even Matt Damon was able to find the Weapons of Mass Destruction that Colin Powell had claimed would be found by the United Nations. Although it backfired on him, Saddam did regularly mess with the UN WMD inspectors. His regime regularly denied them access to warehouses and palaces that were set to be investigated. The inspection regime itself was pathetically weak, in particular because it was required to notify Iraq ahead of time of where and when the inspections would occur. The Bush administration publicly pushed the possibility of a system of mobile weapon labs that would simply travel to a building that wasn't slated to be inspected on that day. Hans Blix, a Swedish diplomat who served as the UN chief weapons inspector, tells us 
that there were about 700 inspections, and in no case did we find weapons of mass destruction. We went to sites given to us by intelligence, and only in three cases did we find something. A stash of nuclear documents, some Vulcan boosters, and several empty warheads for chemical weapons. He was in the process of determining whether these findings were the tip of the iceberg or simply fragments remaining from the past when the U.S. invasion commenced. Blix independently found the U.S. guilty of a lack of critical thinking, particularly in not properly examining the source of the evidence that they were utilizing. Take, for instance, the evidence that an Iraqi agent was in North Africa purchasing yellow cake uranium, a clear-cut indicator of a nuclear weapons program. That particular story was provided by an individual who had previously been caught lying to the intelligence community for financial gain. The CIA was also unable to collaborate the story with any other sources. But the George W. Bush administration, which had been obsessed with invading Iraq from its beginning, decided to ignore those red flags and presented it as fact rather than possibility. The president's father, George H.W. Bush, had decided against invading Iraq in the aftermath of the successful liberation of Kuwait. Let me remind you again what he said in 1998 about the decision. While we hoped that a popular revolt or coup would topple Saddam, neither the U.S. nor the countries of the region wished to see the breakup of the Iraqi state. We were concerned about the long-term balance of power at the head of the Gulf. Trying to eliminate Saddam, extending the ground war into an occupation of Iraq, would have violated our guideline about not changing objectives in midstream, engaging in mission creep and would have incurred incalculable human and political costs. Apprehending him was probably impossible. We had been unable to find Noriega in Panama, which we knew intimately. We would have been forced to occupy Baghdad and, in effect, rule Iraq. The coalition would instantly have collapsed, the Arabs deserting it in anger and other allies pulling out as well. Under those circumstances, furthermore, we had been self-consciously trying to set a pattern for handling aggression in the post-Cold War world. Going in and occupying Iraq, thus unilaterally exceeding the UN's mandate, would have destroyed the precedent of international response to aggression we hoped to establish. Had we gone the invasion route, the U.S. could conceivably still be an occupying power in a bitterly hostile land. It would have been a dramatically different and perhaps barren outcome. With the gift of historical hindsight, Bush's statement fully foreshadowed what would come to happen after his son ignored his advice and invaded Iraq. Despite achieving an undergraduate history degree from Yale, the son had failed to learn from his father's past. But perhaps we shouldn't be that surprised. After all, this was the guy who once said, there's an old saying in Tennessee, I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, fool me once, shame on, shame on you. Fool me, you can't get fooled again.
Despite Powell's one hour and 16 minute presentation, which included a CIA made PowerPoint, America was denied permission to go to war with Iraq by the United Nations. Proving that they held themselves above international law, America and a self-proclaimed coalition of the willing began the process of Iraqi regime change on March 21, 2003. Unlike the first Persian Gulf War, whose coalition included a who's who of international powers with particularly strong support from the Middle East, this coalition became the butt of late-night talk show hosts. 48 countries officially joined, with the United Kingdom serving as the second largest supporter of the war after America. After that came names that aren't highly regarded as the top international warriors of the 21st century. Nations such as Mongolia, the Solomon Islands, Latvia, Lithuania, Micronesia, and Palau made the list. Nations that joined up received sizable increases in foreign aid from the Bush administration, leading to British activist Tariq Ali labeling it as a coalition of the shilling. The size of the coalition became the source of late-night laughs after presidential candidate John Kerry criticized Bush's coalition, claiming that we can do better. To which Bush responded, well, actually, he forgot Poland. The ranking Democrat on the Senate Appropriations Committee oversaw the flow of funds to U.S. allies and began to refer to the Coalition of Willing with the acronym of COW, considering that we were being milked by our allies as a cash cow. A Canadian member of parliament would go on to criticize it as the Coalition of Idiots. The opening ceremony for Bush's personal War of Destiny was designated as Operation Shock and Awe. This overwhelming display of power involved the dramatic nighttime bombing intended to leave the enemy stunned, confused, overwhelmed, and paralyzed. After four straight days of bombing runs, the Air Force had dropped 2,000 precision-guided munitions. That's 500 for every 24 hours. I was student teaching during the operation, and I still vividly recall my students watching as our largest conventional bombs tore through Mesopotamia. After seeing repeated mushroom-like clouds rising through their picture screens, my 15-year-old students asked, why are we nuking another country? Jamal Ali was an engineer in Baghdad during the campaign. He recalls the event for us, stating, I remember we were sleeping. We just hear the bombing everywhere. So that's when the war started. And we fell off the bed because the whole house was shaking. I call it a really dirty war because they want to get it over fast. So they are targeting either the water stations, electric stations, and all the essential things for the people. Which is, that's not good. Everywhere you live, at least there is something important for the Allies to hit. Some of my friends, some of my relatives, some of them have been missing. They don't know what happened to them. 
Bush 40, W's father, had foreseen that any invasion of Iraq would require that the Americans install an occupying force. Yet the opening salvo came against water and electrical systems, systems which were designed to make the cities of Iraq inhabitable for all. America was attempting to win the hearts and minds of the Iraqi people by destroying their ability to live. After this display, Saddam went on the PR offensive, claiming that the criminal little Bush has committed a crime against humanity. The easiest case to make against Saddam Hussein, indeed the only one of the three that turned out to be true, was the case that he was a serial human rights abuser. Since the Ba'ath Revolution, the people of Iraq had lived in a perpetual state of fear. That fear's origin was Saddam Hussein. Shock and awe was designed to intimidate the Iraqi people into laying down their weapons so that the American forces could cut out the center of the corruption. But the people living within the prison that was the nation of Iraq didn't need encouragement to put down their weapons. They needed someone to take out their oppressor. Shock and awe merely made them afraid of two groups, the Iraqi and American governments. The logic that led to the shock and awe operation would pop up again in the news years later, after trillions of dollars of government contracts were awarded to Halliburton, a company with close ties to the Bush administration. These lucrative contracts were granted for the company to rebuild everything that had previously been destroyed in the operations that followed. The lesson learned is that you don't really want to blow up the critical infrastructure if you are intending to rule over the people living there. Bush created further missteps in creating and distributing a deck of cards that had individual Iraqi war criminal faces on playing cards that represented their value to the mission. Saddam was the ace of spades, while his two sons were the ace of clubs and hearts. Saddam's chief bodyguard rounded out the top line of criminals. Today, Russia has recycled this card trick in its unwarranted war against Ukraine. American citizens' desire to purchase their own set of cards was seen as buying into the war effort. David Utah, a psychology professor at Northwestern, referred to it as basking in reflected glory. He also said that it was just another way of dehumanizing our enemies, a common process in the midst of a devastating war. Further adding to the public perception nightmare of the unnecessarily patriotically branded Operation Iraqi Freedom was the impossible to miss detail that the very first designated sites for liberation were the oil fields of Iraq. I'll actually defend the Bush administration here, as Saddam had shown in the prior Gulf War that he was willing to light Kuwait's oil fields on fire in order to slow the advancement of coalition forces. These costly environmental disasters took years to get under control. The securing of these sites denied Saddam a potent weapon at his disposal. 
putting out the fires in Kuwait had cost $2.5 billion, and restoring their operations added another $20 billion to the bill. Knowing this, it is entirely reasonable to have parachuted down ground forces to immediately secure these high-valued sites. The perception of the action, however, looked terrible. Although we successfully prevented Saddam from torching the wells, our actions gave substantial fuel to the fire for dissident groups, which argued that we were merely just after the oil. If you only look at our first two actions, shock and awe, and then the seizure of Iraq's oil fields, we appeared to be operating under the same playbook that Iraq had utilized in bombing Iran in order to seize their oil fields, before then invading and annexing Kuwait for its oil revenue. To add clarity, General Tommy Franks outlined the overarching mission for the war as having eight objectives. Seven of the objectives dealt with the justifications for war that Colin Powell had laid out. The additional objective spelled out America's desire to secure energy. Here is how Franks put it. The first objective of the war is ending the regime of Saddam Hussein. Second, to identify, isolate, and eliminate Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. Third, to search for, to capture, and to drive out terrorists from that country. Fourth, to collect such intelligence as we can relate to terrorist networks. Fifth, to collect such intelligence as we can relate to the global network of illicit weapons of mass destruction. Sixth, to end sanctions and to immediately deliver humanitarian support to the displaced and to many needy Iraqi citizens. Seventh, to secure Iraq's oil fields and resources, which belong to the Iraqi people. And last, to help the Iraqi people create conditions for a transition to representative self-government. The capital city of Baghdad fell to Allied forces on April 9th. The U.S. military had once again rolled through the defenses of the dictator of Iraq. On May 1st, 2003, President Bush, who had served in the Texas Air National Guard during the Vietnam War, was delivered on a fighter jet to the USS Abraham Lincoln. This made-for-TV event was overly dramatic even for the God-fearing commander-in-chief who would boldly declare in 2004 that I am a war president. Take for instance his decision to land a plane on an aircraft carrier. The setup made it appear as if he were in the Middle East, overseeing the war as the commander-in-chief. The truth of the matter, however, was that the aircraft carrier was stationed in San Diego, which is just about as far as you can get from Iraq. Although he wore a flight suit, he was merely the passenger of an experienced pilot. Standing beneath a banner that declared mission accomplished, the president announced a successful end to the war, despite the fact that as of May 1st, they had not yet achieved any of General Frank's eight stated objectives. Saddam remained at large, despite Richard Pearl, the Pentagon Defense Policy Board chairman, declaring 
that support for Saddam, including within his military organization, will collapse after the first whiff of gunpowder. The liberation of Iraq hadn't brought immediate peace to the victims of Saddam. Rather, it resulted in widespread looting and rampant lawlessness. Donald Rumsfeld's response was to shrug and say that stuff happens. It's untidy and freedom's untidy. And free people are free to make mistakes and commit crimes and do bad things. The American military continued scouring the city for the deck's missing aces. On July 22, 2003, Saddam's sons were killed at the conclusion of a three-hour firefight in the city of Mosul. In order to prove that the two hated brothers had been finished off, the American forces released the pictures of their bruised and battered bodies. As disgusting as the public act was, Baghdadi businessman Kali Ali would state for the record that the two men's death is not enough. He tells us that they should have been hung up on poles in a square in Baghdad so all Iraqis could see them. Then they should die as people ate them alive. Still, Saddam managed to elude the coalition of the willing. An insurgency began to pop up, which had as much to do with the locals' dislike of the Americans as it did with their love of Saddam Hussein. It was as H.W. Bush had predicted. The U.S. was destined to be viewed as an occupying power in a bitterly hostile land. After nine months on the run, which was seven months after Bush had declared mission accomplished, Saddam was dragged from an underground bunker near his hometown of Tikrit. Task Force 121, an elite covert joint special operations team, led the raid. Acting on a tip, the team searched two sites before coming up empty. It wasn't until the group of elite soldiers were packing up to be extracted from the location that one soldier kicked a piece of flooring to one side, exposing what the military refers to as a spider hole. Hussein emerged from the hole just before a flashbang was sent in and proclaimed, I am Saddam Hussein, I am the president of Iraq, and I am willing to negotiate. The U.S. military appropriately held on to Saddam Hussein until an interim Iraqi government was set up. Despite the capture of the president, the Iraqi insurgency against the West continued. ISIS, a religious fanatic group that seeks to bring about an apocalyptical clash between the second coming of Jesus and the Antichrist, had emerged from the chaos along the Syrian-Iraq border and had begun to launch attacks in Iraq mid-summer of 2014. A month and a half after the official handoff to the newly installed Iraqi government, Saddam was criminally charged with the 1982 killings of 150 Shiites in the Dujali massacre. More charges followed. The decision to allow the new Iraqi government to serve as judge and jury against the old government was controversial. 
The Economist, a British-based news source that I am particularly fond of, revealed that America's plan for its top leaders of Saddam's regime is far more controversial and almost certainly a mistake. The magazine continues that this is to reject the idea of an international tribunal and instead to hold trials before Iraqi-only courts. The administration's stated goals are laudable. It rightly argues that the worst crimes of Saddam's regime were against the Iraqi people, and so concludes that they themselves should be the ones to judge their tormentors. Iraqi-controlled trials will also help establish the rule of law in Iraq, claims the administration, providing the cornerstone of a new, sorely needed legal system. These are indeed desirable goals, the economist continues, but they are unlikely to be achieved through locally controlled trials of Saddam. If he is caught alive or his minions, Iraq's judges and lawyers have all been compromised by their own involvement in decades of repression. Returning Iraqi exiles, themselves victims of the regime, would also lack credible impartiality, even in the eyes of most Iraqis. The usual pattern after the fall of dictatorships is the escape of top leaders, revenge killings, and kangaroo courts. Such could yet be the turn of events in Iraq. Trials held under American auspices will also be too easy for skeptics, inside as well as outside Iraq, to dismiss as victor's justice. Saddam and his defense team were given time in prison to prepare their defense. GQ magazine published the details straight from the mouths of five Pennsylvania National Guardsmen who were in charge of Saddam's 10-month-long guard detail. The highlights? He was a germaphobe who regularly showed a lack of respect for women and was able to down a family-sized bag of Doritos in 10 minutes. On the other hand, he absolutely hated Fruit Loops, admired President Reagan, thought Clinton was an okay president, but considered both of the Bushes as no good. Towards the end of his imprisonment, he regularly sought to speak to George W. Bush, claiming that he wanted to make friends with him. He reportedly told his captors, he knows I have nothing, no mass weapons. He knows he'll never find them. This wasn't a new position for Hussein. The loquacious former dictator of Iraq had even once offered to debate Bush live on TV before the war had begun. His intention, he claims, was to once and for all prove that Iraq wasn't hiding anything from the world. While in prison, he kept up with the Muslim tradition of praying five times a day suggesting that at the end he may have finally found religion, but spent much of his time in captivity comparing himself to Jesus. He was particularly fond of relating his personal predicament to how Judas had betrayed Jesus. According to reporting by the Jerusalem Post, he was like, that's how it was for me. If his Judas never said anything, nobody ever would have found him. The trial began in October of 2005, and it leaves a lot to be desired. 
Now to be clear, Saddam Hussein was a despicable individual who properly deserves the lifetime punishment that the creators of South Park have decided to met out. They have regularly depicted the Butcher of Baghdad as spending eternity serving as the romantic boy toy of Satan. Saddam will be executed at the end of his trial, which is the right ending for a horrific human being. But the trial had numerous elements of the show trials that we like to point out as negatives when we study dictatorial regimes. The inconsistencies with the West's interpretation of the rule of law began almost immediately. Rather than having one trial for the plethora of charges arrayed against him, the Iraqi High Tribunal, which was created specifically for this occasion, proceeded with each trial separately. This would allow them to learn from any mistakes made and increase the odds of a guilty verdict as they progressed. It turned out not to be necessary, as Saddam was found guilty of the first charge, the Dujali case. The punishment was determined to be death by hanging, and the self-proclaimed anointed one was executed on December 31st, 2006. At that particular moment, he was in mid-trial for the Anfal massacre charge. That trial continued despite his death, upon which he was once again granted a second death penalty. Shenanigans were the order of the day, with Saddam regularly jumping up and interrupting witnesses providing testimony. He became particularly irked whenever a witness would leave off the honorific president when discussing his violent past actions against their family members. At different times, he interrupted in order to accuse the new Iraqi government of committing war crimes and vowed to see each individual in the court executed. At times, Saddam even objected to the fact that he was forced to be there, accusing the judge of having familiar ties to his henchmen and charged the court with acts of terrorism. The Media Research Center performed an analysis of the trial's coverage and found that the wrong aspects of the courtroom proceedings were receiving the most attention. They found that, in spite of a record equal to some of the worst tyrants in human history, reporters found Saddam's personal reactions and orchestrated antics more compelling than the witness testimony against him. The networks gave Saddam's behavior more airtime than any other topic, nearly 30 minutes, one-third of the coverage. In contrast, the networks allotted just 11 and a half minutes for witness testimony and evidence. Just slightly below the nearly 12 minutes devoted to suggestions Saddam would not get a fair hearing. A large number of international organizations would openly question the legitimacy of the trial. Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, and the High Commissioner for Human Rights all raise serious doubts about the proceedings. I will say again, the Saddam was guilty of the charges against him, and unquestionably evil. But think about whether the following would be accepted within the American judicial system. Mid-trial, Judge Rizgard Mohammed Amin, an ethnic Kurd, 
resigned due to what he called unbearable political interference. The next judge to oversee the trial, which continued despite the judge swap, was Abdullah al-Amiri. He was soon forced to resign by the Iraqi prime minister after an odd exchange with Saddam during the proceedings. A witness was in the midst of describing how he was told of the gruesome death of his family at the hands of the defendant. When Saddam interrupted to question whether he, as a bad guy dictator, would really show up to tell the witness that his family was dead. To which the judge said, you were not a dictator. People around you made you a dictator. To which a stunned Saddam replied, thank you, before calmly sitting down. For this statement that Saddam wasn't a dictator, the judge was politically forced to resign, only to be replaced by another judge, the third of the trial, who took a direct, firm hand with the former dictator-turned-prisoner. Ralph Rashid Abd al-Ahmed saw out the end of the trial, but whether he should have is again doubtful. Al-Rahman himself had been tortured by Hussein's security agents and had close family members that were killed in 1988 by a poison gas attack that had been ordered by the butcher. The Herald Times provides an excellent recap of the restart of the trial, with Al-Rahman presiding. They begin by pointing out that former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark, part of Saddam's defense team, decided not to attend what he referred to as lawless proceedings. He also might not have attended because three other members of Hussein's defense team had been murdered during the course of the trial. Abdel Rahman, the Herald Times writes, wasted little time in distinguishing himself from his predecessor, telling the court at the start of the proceedings that anyone who broke the rules would be thrown out. The session rapidly degenerated into chaos. The defense counsel called the court the daughter of a whore and refused to sit down. Abdel Rahman ordered the offending lawyer to be dragged out of the courtroom. Then defense lawyer Salih al-Amati, a Jordanian, was forcibly removed from the court for yelling at the judge. The entire defense team then walked out in protest. This is an unjust and illegitimate court, Kali al-Dumali, Saddam's chief lawyer, told the judge on his way out. Protesting the expulsion and shouting, down with traitors and down with America, Saddam then got into a heated argument with the judge for rejecting the court-appointed lawyers and demanding to leave. When the judge ordered guards to remove him, Saddam, holding a Quran under his arm, became indignant, saying he was choosing to go, and referenced his time in power, stating for the record that for 35 years I led you, and you say eject him? The judge countered, I am the judge, and you are a defendant, and you have violated order in the court. I am implementing the law. Those events occurred on January 30th, 2006. On November 5th, he was sentenced to death, subject to a one-month appeal. That appeal was denied on December 26th, 
and Saddam was taken to the gallows and hung on December 30, 2006. The new Iraqi government again showed that they weren't up for the moment after grainy cell phone footage quickly emerged of the hanging. The deposed leader's final words were directed at his captors, who were in the process of chanting an Islamic prayer. Go to hell, he tells them, before the scaffolding collapses and he swings to his death. It was a spectacular fall for a man whom the West had once backed to be the future of secular pan-Arabism throughout the Middle East. Like all authoritarians, Saddam's legacy changes with the state of the nation's prosperity. In the past few years, the Iraqi government has now grown strong enough to publicly demand that American forces exit. They have also regained sovereignty over their territory in the continuing fight against ISIS. But in the immediate aftermath of the trial, there were many in Iraq that had begun to think that only an authoritarian was capable of successfully governing Iraq. Saddam had continued a long legacy of sectarian violence which had begun with the drawing of the borders to include Sunni, Shiite, and Kurds. Iraq's economy has been in tatters ever since the invasion of Iran, an event that surely changed everything for Saddam. He had always been sadistic and cruel, but the world was willing to ignore all of his brutality if oil kept flowing. The debt he collected, doing what he claimed to be the West's dirty work for them against Iran, prevented him from rebuilding his country. The doubling down with the invasion of Kuwait only worsened the situation. But he had asked through back channels specifically what America's thoughts on the invasion would be. In his mind, he had been given the green light. Faced with an invasion to oust him from Kuwait, he behaved as any tyrant would, threatening and even seeking out the assassination of his enemy, in this instance, President George H.W. Bush. Contained by a program of sanctions after the conflict ended, he seemed content to skim off of the UN Oil for Food program to maintain his lavish lifestyle at the expense of the people. Little could he have known that another Bush was on his own personal mission from God to avenge his still living father. Saddam's statues and likeness have all been taken down as Iraq seeks to erase him from their collective memory. But he still is credited with being the builder of modern Iraq. You can't tell the story of Iraq without a lengthy chapter regarding his rule. Airports and towns that he erected remain. His 1970s oil-infused spending spree resulted in Iraqis having access to the wider world, allowing them to buy things like expensive foreign cars that were heavily subsidized by the Ba'athist government. With the price of oil at an all-time high, everything seemed possible. Everything except the two and a half decades of war and suffering that followed his ill-fated decision to invade Iran in 1980. The extent of the damage of his rule remains unclear. As Wahid Abdil Magyud of the Al-Ahem Center for Political and Strategic Studies tells that Saddam leaves behind misery and destruction everywhere. 
Iraq is a society imbued with fear. One will need decades to recover. But that recovery is in motion. In 2014, the Iraqi government successfully defended its territory against an ISIS advance. And Sajed Ajid of the Al Bayan Center for Planning and Studies, a Baghdad based think tank, believes that now is the best time in Iraq since 2003. The invasion now is history for most Iraqis, and they expect better things going forward. The priorities now are job creation, fighting corruption, and better services. Elections are a good thing and a healthy thing, but it is a process, and Iraq is still a ways away from being there. We are still recovering from our wars, he writes. Before the ISIS war, it was the U.S. invasion, the Gulf War, and the Iran War. Most of Iraq's population has never seen peace. It's always been war or sanctions or violence, and it stunted Iraq's opportunities. Here is hoping that Iraq, home to the cradle of civilization itself, again achieves what it is capable of. It hasn't been easy as global unrest is growing. The government of Baghdad now faces the dual problems of shrinking revenues and multiplying expenditures. It still has no idea how to unite three secretarian forces into a unified nation without exposing themselves to toxic nationalism. Voter participation is low in the new democracy. Apathy makes for conditions that are once again ripe for a strong man to seize power. To this end, it is more important than ever that we learn the lessons from the past and that we learn the truth about Saddam Hussein one of history's greatest monsters.